started. You're in a class because you want to know what does it mean to think like a believer? And uh, what does God say about using cultural issues? What does the Bible say about that? Uh, and how can I have a discussion with others about these topics from a biblical standpoint? That's the name of this class. That's kind of the subtitle and the plot that we're going with, okay? But before we go any farther, let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Father God, as we come before you, as we talk about these issues, Father, it may not be a struggle for us. It may not be a struggle that we have, but it may be a struggle for our loved ones. It may be a struggle for people that we know or people that we encounter, people we work with. It may be a struggle for the next generation to come that we have to have this conversation with. But Father, I pray and ask that all we do is we fall on your word, we fall on your Holy Spirit, and we fall on the love of Jesus Christ in our life, Father, that you guide and direct us in these conversations. In your name we pray and ask it. Amen. All right, a couple of things as we move forward. Ground rules. Everything that we talk about, uh, everything the church does should be looked at through the love of God. So even though we're hitting hot button topics, this is not a time for our soapbox and for us to sit up here and throw stones at people. It's a time for us to look at it through the lens of the love of God, okay? Can y'all see that good, by the way? And for the record, because next week when I do this, I want to make sure I have the right font, okay? So we're good. All right, second, these topics are not to bash people over the head with the Bible, but to inform so we can understand how to help people. And then thirdly, we offer forgiveness through Jesus because he forgave us first. So when we approach this topic, we need to understand it's because of our forgiveness is so that we can move forward and talk to others about preventing sin in their life or being forgiven for sin in their life. So the last part there is, uh, is a quote from, from uh, way long ago. It says, there, but for the grace of God goes blank. Your name goes in that blank. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, then whatever topic we cover, you could be in that situation. And we still don't know what the future holds in our life. Okay? Sin's a progressive thing. And for us to sit back and say, I would never, really should not come off our lips. I pray that I never. But we got to make sure, because you just don't know down the road where we end up justifying sin because of circumstances that come up in our life. Sin is a progressive thing, and we have to look through the lens of God for that. All right, so today we cover abortion. This is, in all likeliness, the most important moral issue, not just, not just of our day, but in all of history, okay? Uh, regardless of whether, where you stand on abortion, it's one of the most controversial, pivotal, and emotional charged issues of our day. So let's cover some stats, okay? And I'm going to kind of go through these quick. Um, just for us to look at, all right? I don't mean to sound callous when I go through these. I just throw these out there for us to have, okay? Uh, this comes from the American Life League, and they have quoted uh, CDC, the uh, Center for Disease, Center for Disease Control, right? Okay, I had it, and then all of a sudden the other C threw me off. Uh, it also goes through the Guttmacher Institute, which covers and looks through uh, different aspects of um, sexual reproduction institute, okay? So these quotes, by the way, I've checked both of their websites. So I got it off this one website, but in my research, I've looked at all these other two websites as well. These are the accurate numbers, very similar to what they're quoting. They're not uh, thrown out there. Total number of abortions in the U.S. between 1973 and 2018, 61.8 million. 61.8 million million. 186 abortions per 1,000 uh, live births, according to the uh, CDC. U.S. abortions in 2017 is 862,000, okay, according to the, uh, the GI Institute, or the Guttmacher Institute. Abortions per day is 2,362. Abortions per hour, 98 plus, and one abortion every 96 seconds. Now, if we're in a class for an hour, that's how many is going to be going through just us during this time, okay? I mean, you're talking about, what, 40? Right around there? Just while we meet here. 
And then 13.5 abortions for every 1,000 women aged 15 to 44 in 2017. That's the most recent stat. Now, that's the stats. Let's look at this, though. This is something I found kind of unique and a little fascinating. Since 1973, the, the, blue, the blue line where those meet, that's the level of 1973. Since 2017, we've actually been below when Roe versus Wade first was accepted. And that first year, our numbers are, actually, the, the United States numbers are dropping below where they have been. So you see a downward turn there where it maxed in 1981, but it's been slowly declining. So it seems like, it appears, according to this chart, we're heading in the right direction. Why do you think that is? Ready? So the numbers are down because this is more clinical abortions, not the, the, the medically induced abortions, okay? Hey, the next one though, and this is gonna go kind of what you were saying, okay? So as you see the decline coming down, you also see the number of medication, um, what we call medicated abortions, okay? Now this is more of uh, not the morning after pill. This is the more of they give you the pill to induce the abortion and you go have the abortion at home, okay? In the first couple of weeks that you find out, okay? So, uh, so this is still clinical, but it's pharmaceutical. Um, and, it's, and it's not, this is prior to when the morning after pill came out over the counter, okay? So uh, it's going down, but you see those are on the rise because they're, catch, they're, they're doing earlier with more medicine-induced versus clinical-induced, okay? What do y'all think on this one? So that's America. Globally, 42 million babies every year are being aborted. Six million Jews were slaughtered in the Holocaust. And when we talk about the Holocaust, hopefully we still shudder. But when you talk about aborted babies around the world every year at 42 million, we really should be shuddering. We really should be in fear. Okay? So just to put that in context uh, as we go around. In, uh, in 2014, 65% of women who had abortions self-identified themselves as Christians. 65% said, yes, I'm of the Christian faith. Okay? Now, to me, that's more heartbreaking because that's our people. Okay? That's our people that we talk about there. So, what's our thoughts on these stats? When you see this, what jumps out at you? What, what, what's your gut reaction, I guess, to it? I think when you look at the, 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 the Christian thing, and, and, that, and I'll say this, it does include uh, Catholicism. It does include those that call themselves evangelicals uh, and just plain Protestants. It's, it's a wide variety of it as well. I think a lot of it has to do with family shunning too, right? Of I can't let my mom know. I can't let my grandmother know about what just happened, okay? And I think there's a family uh, pressure that goes on with that too. And they just make the wrong choice on it. All right, so as we go forward, um, framing the issue, there's two positions then and now, okay? So let's go back 15 to 20 years and let's look at it. Most of what I'm going to be coming from is a uh, Planned Parenthood versus pro-life, okay? Just my research of what I was using in the, in the couple of books I was using, the, the, it went this direction, okay? So uh, 15 years ago, then... Framing the issue, two positions then and now, then, 15 to 20 years ago, Planned Parenthood had three premises that they were going off of. The first one was, it's not a baby. It's a fetus. So it was a mom-centered view, okay? Let's look at the mom. Let's make sure the mom has the right choice. Make sure mom does what's best for mom because it's just a fetus, okay? So there was very little talk about pregnancy. The, they did not talk about the baby. They did not, uh, but they did talk about an unborn fetus, all about mom's rights, feelings, her needs, her quality of life, and the impact on her career, her future, and her body. Okay? That's the premise from where they come from. That's the first one. The second one is unwanted pregnancy puts women at risk. Uh, it causes anguish, pain, difficulty of unwanted pregnancies that brings into the woman's life. Uh, the reasons why abortion is a viable option, or this reason is why abortion is a viable option, and it focuses on situations of rape, incest, abnormal stress, and highlighted the dangers of pregnancy in older women. 
Okay? Uh, so it justified an abortion on demand. Okay? So this is the premise that they were using back 20 years ago to say why it's okay, how to justify why it's okay. The third one was the woman is more important than the fetus. And the who of the woman versus the what of the fetus came into question. Okay? They talked about the who, the mom, because it's mom-centered, versus the what. If you don't label it a he or she, then it's a lot more easy to swallow. Then it's a lot more easy to digest, right? So the fetus is equal to that of the appendix or a mass. And that's what they equivalent it to. It's just a growth inside of you. And if it's a growth and you don't want that growth, you can have that growth removed. Okay? Now, if you want me to go one step farther, the next logical step, it's a parasite inside of you. It's just sucking the life out of you. So just get the parasite removed. So we see how that thinking can go down. And then the, the third part of that, of that last one is, is who's to tell a woman that she, what she is or is not to do with her body? Okay? So the pro-choice presumption is, if a fetus is a massive tissue, and if you believe that with all your heart, then the removal of that massive tissue, if it is inconvenient, makes sense. Okay? That's the logic behind it. That's where they're coming from. Now, why do we talk about this? Because you need to know in conversations where they're coming from. You need to understand what their thinking is, what the rationale is. Not to have arguments with, but just to sit here and say, okay, I see your point. I know where you got this from. It shouldn't surprise you when they bring it up in a conversation, when someone brings it up in a conversation. Because outside of Jesus, this is logical sense in some people's mind. Not in everyone. I know the word logic kind of throws people. But, but this is where their mind goes. This is where sin will take people and to justify what they want to do. So we have to know where they're coming from so we know how to also uh, have a conversation back with them. So the right to life. They have a, a two, position, uh, two premises here. And the first one is that life begins with conception. Okay. Now, you want to know why I picked abortion to talk about first because I think this is the easy one for us to talk about. This is easy for us, why? Because when I say life begins at conception, most people in our church would not along with me on this, okay? I don't expect to get a chair thrown at me when I say this, okay? So, so that's why we're kind of jumping into this one. But life begins at conception. The focus is on the need, the rights, and the welfare of the fetus, the life slash fetus is almost always called a baby when you're from a pro-life perspective. And then senior logic from conception until several years after outside the womb, the embryo begins a process of development. Nothing else is added. So once you become pregnant, life begins. Now, once you have the child, we don't just put the child out on the bed and say, there you go, I've done my part, Right? You still have to nurture, you still have to train, you still have to feed, you still have to take care of, change the diapers. You still have to do all that because they're still developing along the way. Just as they're developing inside mom, they're developing outside of mom. So the same logic that you have with a child outside of mom should be the same logic you have with a child inside of mom because they're developing constantly throughout that stage. So when we talk about life begins at conception, it begins at conception and goes on through. And there is still the process of us training and us teaching and us nurturing that embryo inside and after the child comes out. Second premise is unborn babies are fully human. Even though the baby is not fully developed, he or she is a human being. There is no difference in between a five, six, or eight-month preborn baby and a newborn infant except location. So reading through this, you get stories where one twin was born and one twin wasn't. In the eyes of the law, one twin has a life, the other one does not. One's still just a growth inside of mom. And when you start looking through this, uh, in the past two months, three months, my sister had a preemie. Came a month early. 
And then uh, two months ago, my cousin had a preemie. And once the baby's on the outside, they do whatever it takes to keep that baby alive. But when it's on the inside, it's up to mom's choice if you want to keep that baby alive or not. It's amazing just the, just the location is the only thing that's different between in, the, in these situations, okay? So to kill an unborn infant is to kill a human being. And that's where Christianity logic comes from uh, as you go through. So the pro-life look, the presumption is, if a fetus is a pre-born human being, not fully developed, then it must be protected from externally caused death under the same ground rules that prohibit all taking of life. So it's, if it's a life, whether it's inside or outside of the womb, it's still a life, and you protect life. All right? So what about now? Now, I will say this. This is one thing I was... So we had a lot of good talks about why the decline, right? Because they're measuring it. The measuring system was different, right? We talked about clinical abortions going down, but medical abortions on the way up. We talked about uh, training and knowledge is out there and programs are out there. And, and just the culture itself isn't shunning or isn't stigmatizing, I guess, the way that unwed mothers were. Uh, but if we look at now what we look at, this is one thing that wasn't brought up, uh, but y'all were kind of dancing around with it. Hang on. Let me check my notes, make sure I don't jump ahead. Before I get there, I don't have a slide for it. Technology has transformed. Have y'all seen the 4D image of the ultrasounds? Now, my mom had twins. I have twin sisters. They're seven years younger than me. I tell them all the time, we only wanted one of you because that's what big brothers do. And then they would fight each other over which one was wanted or not. Now, that's a joke, right? So it's, but, but, but my mom didn't know she had twins until she was six months pregnant. Because back in the 80s, you got one sonogram. And that was about it. <laughs> now, when they did the heartbeat check, my sisters had the identical heartbeats. They were in sync so doing the heartbeat. But all of a sudden, six months along, my mom's like, hey, this is my third kid. Something's not right. This one's way bigger than the other two. I was an eight-pound baby, and something was not right, <laughs> okay? Because they were bigger at six months than we were at nine. So when they went into the sonogram, they came in and said, look, there's the baby. And then the head moved and said, and there's the second one. Okay, so, so just technology has progressed over time. Even between the time that my son was born, we were allowed two ultrasounds. Now it's, when you want an ultrasound, we'll give you one. And then back then, 40 ultrasounds was like cutting edge, and it was like, how do we even know that's the real kid, right? It was so new technology, even then, we're like, you're just putting anybody's picture up there and selling it to me is all you're doing, okay? But just by seeing 40 imaging of what the baby looks like on the inside, and when, when, when other people I've seen do that, you can actually see it looks like mom or dad. <laughs> then what it is, technology reveals even to a unchristian culture that says, well, that looks like a human. That looks like a baby. That baby's sucking its thumb. It's doing everything a normal baby would. Matter of fact, 85% of women who see the images of 40 images when they have an unplanned pregnancy decides to carry the baby. That stat comes out of San Francisco, which is one of the most liberal areas in our country. And when they see the image, they change their mind 85% of the time. Abortions are on the uh, decrease in the U.S., as we already kind of covered. Uh, but as we move to the now part, Planned Parenthood, their argument is now one of timing. The decision to have an abortion means being responsible and acting with full understanding of the impact. So if a preborn baby negatively impacts the mother's mental or physical health or the welfare, welfare of her family or future, then safe legal abortive options must be kept available to that woman. So now it's not an issue of the baby. Now it's the issue of mom. It's still mom-centered, but it's about mom's mental health. It's about mom's welfare. It's, it's, 
it's not about the growth inside and it's going to be inconvenient. It's about, it's her responsibility, how she fits in society. And if she chooses not to fit in society with that child, she has the option to opt out. Okay. Um, three and four people. Uh, this is stats probably from about 2014. Three out of four uh, ladies that were uh, having abortions were concerned about taking care of another person in their family. One of the illustrations was it was a single mom of four kids and kid number five was coming. And she was already below poverty line. And she's like, how do I take care of a fifth child? Three out of four can't afford the other child. Three out of four say the child will interfere with their work, their school, their ability to care for a dependent. And more than half claim it's necessary because they are unmarried and do not want to be a single parent or because it causes conflict with their husband, which is something we haven't discussed. Sometimes the abortions is because the boyfriend, the cohabitator, or the husband doesn't want the child. And we haven't looked at the outside pressure of someone inside the house saying, go have an abortion. We, we, we don't want to deal with this. We already have four kids. We don't need a fifth one. Take care of it. And that's the situation we find ourselves in when we're having these conversations. So that's why I say we don't want to look we don't want to look at this through judgmental eyes. Yes, sir. No. So the question is that when we have these conversations, people come back and just say, it's none of my business to talk about. Um, one thing I would say about that is, is, is that's why you always bathe your conversation in prayer. Um, I'm going to go two directions with this question. Okay. One is the fact that I'm, I'm betting that person's been burned by the church or Christ, a Christian before. And that's why they've come up with that stance because it's easy to shut the conversation down instead of having the conversation. And I think that's where we do injustice as a church and as Christians is that one, we're, we're reaping what other people have sown, whether it's the bashing or the not listening or not hearing. Um, and so when we get in those conversations, we see that they've already been burned by the church. They've already been burned by people, religious people. It may have even been people they've gone to counsel with, a pastor or a deacon or, or you know, someone and they, in the church, and they come back and just say, well, this is the way it is in a discussion versus listening, right? right. And I'm not saying this is one of these issues I waver on. Scripture-wise, and we're about to get to that, Scripture-wise, it's very clear. But how you introduce Scripture into that conversation We've got to get the opportunity to even do that. Uh, I was uh, in Argentina on a different topic, but kind of, kind of the same scenario. I was in Argentina, and uh, I walk up to this lady, and we're doing a survey, right? Because so, in Argentina, they speak Spanish. Michael Blue does not. <laughs> but all the English classes came to us and said, hey, our teachers saw that y'all were here. They wanted us to answer a sur you to answer a survey so we can get a grade on it. So they would ask us three questions like, why are you here? Uh, you know, uh, why'd you pick Argentina versus going somewhere else? So these just weird English things that we're trying to work with. And I said, okay, I've answered three of your questions. Now can you answer three of my questions? And so I asked the question of, uh, of, about, hey, we're here because Jesus has called us to be here. And the lady just started laughing at me. And she goes, please. She goes, and I said, what's going on? She says, she doesn't believe in sin. I said, really? I said, that's fascinating. Now, I could have easily said, this conversation's over with. You don't believe in sin. First off, we all know you're a sinner just for saying that. And I could easily just walk off and our conversation's done. I had a conversation with a lady that did not believe in sin and did not like to talk about Christian things for 45 minutes before she had to go to another class. And we left by her saying, that's interesting view that you have. I'd love to carry the conversation more. And I'm like, I'll be here next lunch. She didn't show up, but we had the conversation because I didn't shut it down because I disagreed with what she said. And it's part of it's how we approach it, right? And if we just walk up and just say, oh, you've had an abortion? Man, you're going to die and go to hell. That's not the best way to have these conversations. We've got to earn the right for us to have conversations with people. They're not just going to open the door and say, here's all my secrets. Here's all the skeletons in my closet. And this is how big of a sinner I am. We've got to earn that right to have that conversation. And they've got to feel safe for us to have that conversation. Okay, so I think that's a very fair point. It's, it's hard when that happens because, man, then all you can do is pray. 
you know, and you pray for God to, to work in their life with multiple people. And, uh, but that, that's a good point. It's a good point. Anybody else on that? All right, where am I at? All right, so that's the Planned Parenthood position now. Pro-life position now. <laughs> Hadn't changed. 20 years ago, we believed the same thing. 20 years in the future, we still believe the same thing. It has not changed. So how we answer the genuine question, how we answer the genuine questions of people in crisis is a real issue. Um, so the issue today, does the preborn baby have inalienable rights to live under any circumstances? Or does the mother have the right to terminate her pregnancy to care for herself and her family's welfare, fair, both present and future? That's the issue of abortion. That's the issue of what, we, what has to be determined for each and every individual. Okay, so let's look at the evidence. And I'm going to pick up the pace through this, okay? Because I want to get to the end for, for a little more discussion. Um, as we examine the evidence thoughtfully, let's look at it from a medical science. Heartbeat begins between 18 and 24 days after uh, conception. Brainwave begins as early as 45 days. Mothers can feel movement at 42 days. After eight weeks, the baby possesses the unique fingerprints that he or she will have for the rest of her life. And all bodily functions are present at eight weeks and are functioning at 11 weeks. And at 11 to 12 weeks, a baby can suck his or her thumb. You can see it clearly in the 4D image. Okay? Um, but if we also look at it, the criteria for death, as established by Harvard Medical School, may be used in reverse to demonstrate life at early stages of pregnancy, okay? So this is how Harvard Medical would say this person is legally dead because of all these. So if they don't live up, well, I guess that's the wrong choice of words, right? If they don't meet that criteria, then technically they are still living. So by reversing it, it would indicate that an unborn is alive by week six. So that criteria, by the way, is... No response to stimuli or pain. If that person doesn't have stimulus or pain, they can, that's a checkbox for them to say that person's dead. An infant, a fetus inside mom, can stimulate. So, so one of the things that we learned when Laura was pregnant with Braden is uh, she wanted her back massage, so we had one of those little vibrating back massager bee things. So it bzzz, you know, just does that, and... Brayden did not appreciate that at all. I mean, you could watch her stomach move as we did that. I'm like, oh, look at it. He really likes this. So the day he was born, they were looking to see because they're like, okay, we're not sure if you're ready to be delivered or not because they had to induce. And they said, here's what we're going to do. And they take this buzzer out and they do the same thing and they buzz and he like jumped. And we both go, oh, <laughs> So what they were doing to stimulate him to say, I don't like this, get out of there, we thought he was enjoying you the whole time. <laughs> so don't, don't get one of those vibrating massagers and rub on anyone's back when they're pregnant. Child does not like that. Experience talking, <laughs> okay? But no response to stimuli or pain. If there is no uh, spontaneous movement or respiratory efforts, if there is no deep reflexes or no brain activity indicated by a flat EEG. That determines a person is dead. If one of those is taking place, they can't determine that person's dead. That person is still considered alive according to Harvard Medical School. Okay? Uh, by reversing that, you have a living person. So from a historical evidence, going way back, and I'm going to hit this quick, okay, because I know y'all really want to know about Greco-Roman times, and you really want to know about the ninth century feminism movement, but um, Greco-Roman times, uh, the issue was not about unborn or living or not. Back in Jesus' day, it was up to the father to determine if you had an abortion or not. There were ways to do it, but you could also determine to kill your child as well. So when Pilate says, not Pilate, when Herod says, kill everyone under the age of two, and Luke, then he has the right to do that because he's in charge. 
but also every father in the household, if you have too many kids and you can't feed them, then you can take your baby, put them in a basket and send them down the river. And that's your choice. That's your decision. And no one in society really looks down on you because of that. But so abortion and infanticide went hand in hand. Uh, father had the right to kill the child. What changed that? What changed that mentality in the Greco-Roman days? Christianity. Because they would walk out where all these kids got abandoned in the uh, dump area. And the Christians would go out and pick them up and take them in their house and nurture them and take care of them because they saw value even when their family had discarded them and put them out in the dump and said, you're on your own, we're not taking care of you anymore. Christianity changed that viewpoint. Uh, so the culture was transformed for 1,500 years after that. The 19th century feminist movement, uh, early 1800 abortions were illegal only after the mother could feel the movement of her unborn child. After 1840, abortions became more accessible. Uh, the birth rate dropped from seven to three and a half children per family. And abortions terminated uh, for one in five to one in three all pregnancies. Now, here's the thing about the 19th century feminist movement. Their job, their platform was to stop abortions, not start abortions, to stop them. They wanted the men that got the ladies pregnant to take responsibility and pay for their kids. That was the movement of the 1800s. Hey, you caused the situation. You need to be responsible and take care of that situation. Okay? So it was still a male-dominated spot of saying, well, just go get that fixed. Go get that taken care of. Okay? It wasn't until the modern time in the 1920s that doctor, doctors uh, soon thought anti-abortion laws were too rigid. Pro uh, promiscuity increased during the, raging tw the roaring 20s, and the clergy kept silent. When good people don't stand up, Evil runs amok, okay? So 1959, American Law Institute published a new moral code allowing therapeutic abortions for rape and incest and the risk of mental or physical health of the mother. Media factors explain that people would starve to death in the near future unless the population growth was suppressed or stopped. In 1969, the National Association for the Repeal of the Abortion Laws was formed, and it was still not an abortion on demand. You still had to go go through several steps before that was determined. In 1973, Roe versus Wade, uh, 1.2 million abortions each year during that time. Now, from the biblical record, premise one, if we look at it from the Bible, I didn't list the verses here because just for time's sake, I'll kind of summarize them, but here are the verses you want to have jotted down uh, so you can look at, okay? All life is sacred. Human life is the most valuable and precious commodity in the world. Now, if we look at it through the lens of, uh, if you have a scale there, what's the scale of gold? What's it worth? What do you find value in? Who designs this gold? What's it protected? Uh, the protection afforded with it and the cost versus the human life. We get a little comparison here, okay? First, value is determined by the creation. Value is determined by creation and design. Genesis 1.27, let us go and make man in our image. Male and female, he created them, right? Go make, create, we're created in the image of God. The name of the product gives it value. If I were to go out and buy a pair of shoes and it had the word Nike written on it, the price just jumped on me because it has value and it's determined by the name brand. We have the imprint of God on us. And because of that, the value has jumped and it's jumped over every other spot of creation because we were creating the image of God. Nothing else in creation was. So we are considered valued more by the creator and the designer. Value is determined by the protection, by protection afforded. Genesis 9, 6, uh, it talks about the more you protect something, the more value it has. Um, let me ask this question. Anybody got more than one car? When the storm comes, whose car gets put in the garage? Hmm? All of them, right? At my house, I don't have a big enough garage for that. But I'll say this. 
the daddy van, the 2012 daddy van with 205,000 miles on it, never makes it in the garage. Okay? So, <laughs> it doesn't make it in there. Why? Because the protection afforded. The newer car gets put in there, right? Because if the hell storm comes and hits my van, you're not going to notice that much. I mean, it's been beat up and banged up. But, but my wife's car, we're going to notice. And we're going to put that in the garage. Okay? So the value is determined by the protection afforded it. Uh, so Genesis 9, 6, it said, You take a life and yours will be required of you. In summary, value is determined by cost. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, Mark 10, 45, talks about Jesus came to ransom us. Jesus came and gave his life for us. And because of that, our cost goes up. It costs him everything for us to have a relationship with him. There's a cost involved. We talk about free salvation. Salvation may be free because the cost was paid by somebody else. And that was Jesus. And when the cost is paid, then we need to understand every human life has value. Why? Because Jesus died for everyone. It's just that we have to receive that. So he's dying for all of them. There is a cost involved. Now, when I go to Copeland's on my birthday, normally when I go to Copeland's, you have a meal that you pick when you go to Copeland's? Mine's chicken parmesan. I know what you're thinking. You go to Copeland's. Why are you getting chicken parmesan? Because it's good. Okay? Next time you go, check it out. But I had this card, the Lanyap card, I believe it is. And on my birthday, I can get anything I want for free. I don't get chicken parmesan. I get the biggest steak they have because it costs about $30. And I know the other 364 days of the year, Michael Blue can't afford that steak. <laughs> but it's free that day. Now, I get that because I know what it's worth. And I know, hey, I can, man, I'm going for that. Same thing here. When we know what it's worth, that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, we know what the worth is, then it should elevate what the cost is of the lives around us. Okay? Second thing, premise two, Scripture affords the same sacred value on the fetus or the preborn baby as it does on all other human life. Value is determined by the creation uh, and design, right, by the design, right? So Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, Jeremiah 1, 5, it talks about, David talks in, in Psalm about, I was, you knew me in the womb, you knit me together. You had a plan, you had a purpose for me. Jeremiah, I called you when you weren't even born yet, right? Because the designer had a plan. So Israel was on a huge downward moral slide and he called Jeremiah. He knew you. How many lives were cut short because their lives have been cut short. How many people, as we talk about the 65 million around the world every year, what have we missed out on? Because what God had knitted inside the womb, what God has put forth, we didn't get to experience. How many Beethovens are gone? How many great theologians are gone? How many great evangelists are gone? Because of that. Second, values determined by protection afforded. Protection of a preborn child is the same as a born child. In Exodus 21, 22 through 25, it talks about if two people get in a fight and hit a pregnant lady, and it causes that lady to give birth, and that baby dies, then an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay? That's, and the biblical is, it costs a life, your life's required of you. Now, the mom's fine, right? And some people will sit back. They've said that, they've, that even when it comes to um, um, pro-choice people, they've said, well, that was, that was a spontaneous miscarriage. That doesn't count. Well, well, no, that's not what the Hebrew originally says. The Hebrew says, if you cause a pregnant woman to lose her child, period, your life is required of you. So it views the unborn baby as a human life. You have killed that child your life is now required of you. That is the punishment. Okay, values determined by cost. Psalm 51, 5. Uh, we're born sinners both in and out of the womb. We are born sinners. I was, I was talking to, uh, I think it was Nancy and Joseph Sunday, and uh, Hunter, 
also. And I, they said, yeah, the number one word our kids are using now is no. And I said, yeah, you didn't have to teach them how to sin, did you? And they said, no, we see it very clearly. They were born that way. Because we are. We come from imperfection. Therefore, how can we be born perfect? I know they look perfect. But we're still born sinners. And because of that, Jesus came and died for sin. In and outside of the womb. Paid by the blood both in and outside. So, potential debate questions. Any questions on that before I go? Any thoughts? Okay. When the life of the woman, uh, so the debate question is this. Here are four things that, that the debate topic comes up after all this is being said. When the life of the woman's life, when the life of the woman's life is at stake, if she carries to full term, how can we save the woman's life? That's why we need an option for abortion. If it's a rape or incest, how can we punish a person for being violated by someone else? Therefore, we need to have an abortion alternative. If we abolish abortions, then all women would be forced to go to the butcher shops for illegal abortions. Okay? Butcher shops is kind of what they call the back alley abortions. Okay? Um, but that's the argument. I think there's... Nope, that was it. That may be the last one. It would invalidate the best technology we have because there are times when a mother just can't be a good mother sometimes. And we now have an abortion pill, RU486, uh, which can be used early and painless. Doing away with abortion would eliminate the option for the woman. Okay, so those are the four debate points that, that uh, pro-choice people will come with. Now, this is prior to the morning after pill as well. Okay, so, uh, so even looking at that, now, now you go and you take a pill after you sleep with someone the next day or two, and it makes, if you have an embryo, it'll flush it out of your system. So it's something you can take and take care of, and you will never even know you were pregnant. Okay, so with that being said, here's the pro-life stance on that, the way to look at it. C. Everett Koop was a Surgeon General of the U.S. who uh, practiced pediatricians for 30 years. And in the midst of that, uh, he nor his colleagues were not aware of one single case where in their practice the choice had to be made between the life of the mother or the child. Okay? Um, when it comes to pregnancies that are difficult and pregnancies that have issues, I do know and understand they try to save both. They don't walk out. The, 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 the theoretical question we always asked when I was in college was this. If they walk out and they give you the question, Dad, what's it going to be? Or are you going to choose mom or choose the baby? That was the question we would debate, and we'd always have hot topics over that, right? And Did you ever have those conversations? <laughs> I did. <laughs> All right? And uh, so we always thought these hypothetical questions of what would happen. And uh, the ladies would always say, you save the baby. And all the guys would say, you save mom, because you can always have more babies. But the fact is the doctors try to say both and the medical teams come in and they have two different teams that come in and they're trying to save life, period. Okay, they don't walk out and give you a choice. They're just like, we're doing all that we can for both of them. So that question kind of goes null and void when you really realize they're trying to save both in the process. Um, of all the people getting raped, only 0.6% ever get pregnant. That's not to say that's not significant. That's not to downplay anyone that's been through any type of trauma, okay? But the, the back alley abortions are gonna, that are going to occur is false, okay? Because when this argument's made, they assume that it happens extremely a lot of times. In reality, it only happens 300 times maybe. So when you justify or you look at the numbers, it's 300 versus however many hundreds of thousands every year being aborted or the uh, 1.2, I think is another term that they used. So when we look at those arguments, what we look at is, is people that get pregnant because of rape or incest is really an extremely rare situation, okay? But as we mentioned before, God has purpose and plan for every one of them. God has a purpose and plan for every child that, that has been knitted inside the mother's womb. Uh, the RU486 pill is far from easy and painless. It requires multiple times for you to go in and take it. A lot of times, too, when you take that, they send you home to take it, and you end up basically having a miscarriage at home. 
Doctors don't go over that too often with you, okay? And then it goes to the next spot of the post-abortive syndrome. And people never realize that these situations where they go through with abortions, the ramification that it has year after year in their life. Uh, one of the stories I was reading through on some of this, it says a lady had several failed marriages. Her, mom, her relationship with her mom and dad just went down because when she was pregnant as a teenager, she went and had an abortion. She didn't tell anybody about it. She went and had an abortion. And then she saw the, all the other relationships in her life dissolve. And for 20 to 40 years afterwards, it wasn't until she became a Christian that she found forgiveness, she found love, and started looking back and saying, I see the ramifications of that one choice in my life. But no one ever told me the consequences of it. No one ever told me that. They told me how simple it'd be. They told me how this would be no more problems after today. Nothing. But the emotional toll affected her life for the majority of her life. Okay? So that's kind of debate responses to that. Any thoughts? Questions? So how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Like I said, I don't want to sit here and just throw out fact after fact after fact and just say, here's your ammo, go and use it. We find forgiveness and healing in the Bible. As Pastor Tim mentioned, uh, I think two weeks ago, God can fix mistakes. God is bigger than the mistakes you make. And we find forgiveness and healing through God. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the unpardonable sin. Is there consequences that go with it? Absolutely. And we need to have those conversations and prevent as many as possible. But on the other side, we need to be a forgiving church. Remember the comment at the beginning? Lust for the grace of God, there go I. I've seen numerous lives that have come in and out through church. This is one of those topics we always talked about and we always preached about until you realize when you sit in church and you start realizing the people in the church, this affects them personally because they're on the other side of the abortion. And you look out and all of a sudden faces start coming to mind. It's not just numbers that are out there. It's the person that sat in this row last Sunday. It's the person that sat over there. It's that person over there. And they come and give a testimony. When I was doing youth, they came and give a testimony. And they're like, that was 20 years ago. And I still struggle with it to this day. We are a forgiving place in healing. And remember, forgiveness is a step in time, but healing is a journey. If someone walked into our church and just said, hey, I had an abortion and I just need forgiveness, are we a church that's ready to welcome them, accept them, and minister to them? Or are we a church that's going to kind of go back to where John was there? That's just going to say, you know what? You got no business being here. And then next time they have that conversation, they'll look at us and say, I'm sorry. Stay out of my personal life. Stay out of my business because you have no business going there. But with that being said, we need to take responsibility. And when I say take responsibility, I'm talking about as Christians, as believers, we do need to take a stand. When the clergy kept silent, laws got loosened up. So we need to make sure that we are taking a stand and we are taking a fight for this. Now, I'm not saying that we go out and we cause a strike or we get our picket signs. Maybe that's what God's called you to. But we do need to take a stand. We do need to be firm in this. And, and I even say take a stand when it comes to the conversations you're having with people. Don't back down from them. But engage those conversations. Understand where they're coming from. You know, let them know that, hey, I know where you stand on this, but you need to understand where I'm on this. Forgiveness is here. God's love is here. And God's love changes people. So, take responsibility. Also, abortion isn't political, it's moral. Don't make it a political issue, it's a moral issue. Now, I know that moral issues tend to go political as well. 
But we as a church, and, and, and a lot of people, uh, we've, we've been having this debate in our family of what churches can say, but also what can kids say at school, what they cannot say at school. Churches have every right to discuss moral issues. You know, we can't sit up here from a pulpit and say, you need to vote for this person. But we can say, this is how you need to vote morally. Okay? And even as a, as a church, as a body of believers, we need to stand for morals. It's a safe, the safe place at church needs to be established. This is where ministries come from. I know we have Restoration House in our, in our community that works hand-in-hand hand with single moms that come in, and, and they do the ultrasounds the, to say, hey, you know, this is life inside of you. Let us help give you a plan for what you can do with the, chi- with the child, whether you choose to keep the child or not. There are other options. There's adoption. There's fostering, right? But there's also setting limits. What really, really, really gets under my skin is when I see an abortion clinic get blown up. Or when I see Christians that go out to do the right thing and they cross the line, and next thing you know, you see the fights breaking out on TV. Every time if you go out to do something morally right and cross that line, it's going to hit the news, people. It's going to hit the news. But when I look at that, I sit there and say, man, a lot of people are watching this show and they're thinking we are all like them. So we can't cross the line. We've got to set limits of we can take a stand and, and we can say this is the moral absolute. But we're not going to become other people and cross other lines in the process. OK, but I think the biggest thing is we just need to act in love. We just need to show the love of Christ. And when we show the love of Christ, then people come and they want to have conversations and they're eager. Eager may be the wrong word, but they're eager to come and just lay it at your feet and say, here's, I've messed up and I need forgiveness. And when they're just looking for someone to say, you know what? Jesus can forgive you. Jesus can forgive you. There is a way for you to have hope. There is a way for you to have peace in your life. And it's through Jesus Christ. 